Long story short, in Jewish oral tradition, Eve was not the first wife of Adam. His first wife was a woman by the name of Lilith, whom God created to be Adam's equal. When she refused to have sex with him in the missionary position, he got mad and she left the Garden of Eden. God then sent three angels to bring her back. Sanoi, Sansanoi, and Semangaloth. They found her, but she refused to return to the Garden of Eden. She preferred instead to become a demon and cause sickness in infants and ruination in men. She became a succubus, preying on men sexually. However, she swore that if she ever saw the names of the three angels that were sent to retrieve her, written on either a pendant or amulet, whoever wore it, she'd have no power over. Hey folks, what's up? This week we have well, we have Eric Werner on to talk. Uh, he comes back on to talk about Lilith and vampires again. Um, kind of a, an addendum to a show that we did a while ago, which new people wouldn't remember, which is fine because we cover new stuff. Um, but you were at a wedding, so you weren't here. I was. And I had uh, Aaron David from Charm the Water. He was going to come on with us anyways, even before it turned out you had to go to a wedding. And me and Aaron have been talking for a long time. I've been on, um, I've been on um, Soraya's show. Where did the road go with him? Several times, and we've talked to each other a few times off the air for an extended period. So I said, "Hey, um, you know, because you didn't really have too much. You didn't read the book." So I was like, "Well, you know, we'll have Aaron come on because every once in a while I can throw a spanner in the works." just to stir things up a little bit. And then you ended up becoming busy, so it worked out for the best for the most part. So um, Eric comes back on here to talk about uh, Lilith. He went back and touched up on the book because apparently when he wrote his vampire book and he was on here before, his publishing company said, you need to come up with a vampire book in six months and it needs to be under 200 pages and blah, 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 blah. And he was like, what the hell? So he did it, but he wasn't real happy with it. So he went back and redid the vampire book, and in the process, he discovered more stuff about Lilith. Now, myself, I have this weird thing with um, with with demonology and things like that. Not full blown demonology, but the legend of Lilith is one of those ones that, for me, it's kind of a fairy tale kind of thing, and watching it evolve, and just how these legends evolve over time. So what I did is I recorded it, and then I gave the interview to you, and you listened to it. So what are your thoughts on it? It was good. It was a solid interview. Yeah, yeah, Aaron. Eric is, um, oh, go ahead. Eric is, uh, you know, well versed. He's a very learned individual, and Aaron is extremely intelligent. So, I mean, it made for a good interview. Yeah, they they hit it off pretty well. Um, with Aaron having his magic background, and his his podcast is primarily about magic and different schools of magic. And I mean, some of it's fascinating. I'm more involved in the history of magic. I like reading the history of it, but not so much the workings of it. I figured mm-hmm. you guys would hit it off real well because he's a big fanboy of the show and he'd never heard of Werner's work. So it was kind of interesting just to let that go about. I so, still don't know how people haven't heard of him. Um, I don't know. I mean, he's got a he's got a big group of fans and he's got a, a big following of people. He's always been cool with us. He's always been you know, really reticent to come on our show and and talk to us about anything. It's just a matter of scheduling. But if he can work out a schedule, he always comes on and talk to us, you know, talk to us about whatever he's got out there. And he's very intelligent. He doesn't mm-hmm. um, 
put an excessive amount of goth or dark. Well, I think I think Aaron calls it dark fluff, um, but he doesn't put a lot of that dark into his fluff. Books. What is that chocolate? <laughs> well, he doesn't like he doesn't go out of the way to over goth it. I guess you'd say it's just pure straight on research, and it's well, you know, it's it's almost academic to the point where it's it's. I mean, he's got some of himself in it, but it's still very enjoyable to read his stuff and. I, I could have him on here for almost every book that he's done because they're all topics that we're interested in. So, mm-hmm. well, we'll talk more when this is over with. Um, I am have a little thing here at the front here to introduce everybody to Aaron David from Charm the Water. So anybody who's not familiar with him knows who he is. And we go into a little piece with him and then we just go right into the interview. So this is kind of a, a more lengthier show. And then we'll see you guys at the other side of this to uh, BS and what have you. So we'll see you then. Bye bye. All right, so here's the deal, folks. Tonight, Lobo is off at a wedding, and we have Eric Werner coming on to talk about his book, Lilith, From Ancient Lore to Modern Culture. Um, before, um, I'm going to go one step further and say we've had him on the show. He also writes under the name Corvus Nocturnum, and I promised him I would say that at the beginning of the show. So a lot of you people probably know who he is. But since Lobo is gone tonight, I have my boy Aaron David on here from the Charm the Water podcast who, um, Aaron, I've talked to you a few times on uh, Where Did the Road Go? And I think me and you have had probably a, at least an hour and a half conversation off the air a few times just through Skype. Yeah, yeah so, we had that one private conversation that yeah. one night where you, you got all sexy on me. And well, it's, like, you I, know, I, I don't know about this. Eh, well, I didn't hear you complaining <laughs> at the time, you know, it's, and it was using my Barry White voice. But um, <laughs> it's okay. We don't have to talk about it publicly, at least not where people can't pay for it. But um, well, <laughs> I, I appreciate you having me on, and it's an honor to be here. I've listened to you guys for a long time. Yeah, it kind of was like we, we do this weird thing where sometimes we'll have guests on the show assisting with interviews we've done the same thing with uh oh shoot i can't remember his name now so it was a bad example to bring up but we've done this many times we've had people on to assist me with interviews and then i'll have them back later on solo to just interview them that way because me doing interviews on my own i kind of suck at it i mean i can do it but one of the reasons that i wanted you here is the nature of the topic that we're talking about which Mm -hmm. is lilith and you come from you are um to give everybody a real brief synopsis of you if you're not familiar with Aaron David. Aaron hosts the Charm the Water podcast, which is a podcast about uh, magic, for lack of a better term, I would I would say, right? Yeah, uh, that's a good way to put it. Um, I would describe myself as Trithemian, uh, Trithemius. I work his system of planetary initiation, and that's kind of where I'm coming from. I'm uh, touch on Golden Dawn stuff, the Lemix stuff, uh, typical occult stuff, grimoire stuff, um, Boring to lots of people, <laughs> kind of inaccessible <laughs> to lots of people. But, uh, you know, I try to I'm trying to have fun with it. So and the reason I wanted you here is because of that background. But also you have come from various Christian backgrounds. Um, were you Pentecostal as well, I believe, at one time? Yeah, uh, grew up Pentecostal. Um, got tired of the emotive nature of that. It's very charismatic, very ecstatic and uh from there i kind of got into more hardcore christianity called calvinism and very much got into theology and uh then i came across well after that after a couple of years of that my marriage fell apart my dad died kind of had this dark night of the soul era and uh met a guy named rufus opus online who sent me his neoplatonic basics and uh got into magic occultism from there 
and uh, Charm the Water was off from that point. Now, I've done episodes with you on Charm the Water, and um, we've talked about how a person goes from, which I believe you can still find out in Charm the Water, about how a person goes from a religious background into a practitioner of magic, which I've always found that journey rather fascinating. But the reason I, I thought, wow, this would be a good fit here because of your biblical studies, and I don't want to say big, biblical scholarship, but you do know a lot about these things. And I was like, you know what? This might actually work pretty well. And I'm glad you know, we did it. <laughs> I, I was wondering your your motives behind asking me on. So now I know because I was wondering about that. Well, as I was telling you off the air, I like having other guests on here from time to time to because people know, you know, they're pretty used to myself and Lobo's interview style. Um, and I like to try to as much as pop. One of the things this show is known for is we make left turns and right turns all the time. We do crazy Ivans like nobody's business. We'll talk one thing one week and the next week and go into a completely different direction. And I rather like that aspect of chaos about the show. So I thought it would be interesting since Lobo's not going to be here to have you on here. And as I told you before the show, the only rule is there are no rules. Feel free to talk. And you do talk a lot in this interview. You do direct it a lot, which I was completely fine with. And I really enjoyed you being here because you took this show into a lot of different directions and you asked a lot of questions that I thought, wow, that's a really good question. I wish I had thought of asking that question, which is, you know, what I like to do. I like to hear that. And plus, the other thing is I'm fat for a reason, and that's because I'm lazy. So by having you <laughs> on here to to do these kinds of things, it, it just makes less work for me to have to be on the ball. Well, so, I, would, I- I think it's a testament to your adaptability. Charm of the Water is about, you know, water being all adaptable and, and shit. And um, I think that's very cool that you're you're not a lot, not like a lot of people into magic and paranormal and ufology where they already have all the answers that they need and they're very dogmatic about it. And, you know, it's either this or that. You're not like that. You're very open, open to... You have an open ear, so I really appreciate that about you. That's because I try to be as agnostic about everything as I possibly can. And when people get locked into a certain kind of belief or a certain kind of system, I tend to want to repel for that. Like people come up to me, are you a are you a Republican or a Democrat? I'm neither. I'm a person trying to find their <laughs> way through. Well, do you believe in UFOs or this? Or do you believe in UFOs or nuts and bolts? Do you believe they're a spiritual thing? And I'll go all cards around the table as long as you're not trying to tell me that the reptilians are attacking the greys and, and they're secretly controlling well, our bloodlines, <laughs> <laughs> which is this, my this, go-to answer for that. But This is you know. the most important question. Is Bigfoot tracks and turds? Or um, something? I, I think, <laughs> I, I think uh, Bigfoot is more uh, of a beef jerky kind of thing. Um, no, I don't. Actually, Bigfoot is probably the one thing out there that I'm not. My hat's kind of hung. I really don't think that there's anything out there. But again, you know, people. How many people are actually seeing when people have sightings? How many people are actually seeing something? You know, uh, are they actually seeing a Bigfoot? I, I don't know. I, I it's, it's one of those things where I, I personally just my my disbelief in something does not necessarily negate its existence. Just because I believe I don't believe Bigfoot is real doesn't mean that somebody else hasn't saw a Bigfoot. You know, and I I don't like when my experiences that I've had I've had people tell me and it's my the answer that I hate the most is well I don't believe that you saw something but I believe that you believe you saw something and as much as I hate hate having that told to me I, I found myself using that answer a couple of times 
But again, I go back to, I don't know if people are having experiences. They're having an experience. Do I know if they're lying? And I, I don't know. And a lot of times the nature of the experience that they're having is more important to me than what the actual experience itself may be. Um, and another we, thing is, I don't think people have been asking these questions about all of these topics forever. They haven't found any answers. And I don't think we're ever going to. And to be into this kind of stuff, really into it and really be scholarly about it and, and investigate the stuff, you have to be comfortable with that answer. And I am. You know, I don't I don't think we're ever going to find anything. I don't think I'm ever going to find anything. And I don't really care. You know, I'm, I'm having fun learning what I'm learning and seeing what I'm seeing. I think that's awesome. And um, I think that's the way to go about questing for answers. And I th- I was really impressed by your guest, uh, E.R. Vernor about his approach uh, in his book, Lilith, which is was my first exposure to his work and how he came about this in a way completely unbiased. He's not making any conclusions. He's just gathering a lot of research. And I think, I don't want to speak for him, but I think he would want to come across with a psychological point of view, tying a lot of things together and saying, hey, look at this. This is what I, what's out there. And look how it kind of all, all ties together. And I thought that was a very cool about him. And I'm definitely going to be picking up more of his books because I think he's a, a awesome researcher in that he does not put out any hypothesis or any kind of bias. He's just like, here's what it is. Here's what I've dug up. Mm-hmm. And he's also very open about talking about his answers. And if he doesn't know, because there's one point in the show, like if he doesn't know something, he'll just say, I, I really don't know about that, to be honest with you. I don't know very much about that. This is what I do know. Because there was a point in the show that I asked him something and it just kind of fell apart and disintegrated. And it kind of sucked because we were flying on this nice little train of answers and stuff here. And he was coming off of something that you asked him. Like when you asked him questions, he had answers and you could also hear you could hear in his voice him perk up going, oh, this is something nobody has ever asked me before, which, again, mm. is the reason why I was glad that you were here, because you steered this into directions that I wouldn't have thought to go in. But oh, um, thanks, man. I, I can't think of offhand what you're you're referencing there, because I thought your questions were pretty uh, pertinent and uh, succinct <laughs> as well. I thought we made a good tag team on uh, yeah. old ER. We could um, we could sit here and blow each other all night, but um, right. <laughs> let's so let's get moving on here. To uh, we're going to run into the interview here now, because um, I probably won't be talking to you after this is over. With give everybody uh, a chance if people want to go and find your show or you know where people can find you, go ahead and put that out there. Uh, thanks, man. Uh, charmthewater.com on Twitter at charmthewater. And you're kind of going through a kind of a hiatus right now, or you're just taking a break or something. Um, yeah, I'm going on a, a two week vacation and I'm just going to walk away for, from everything for a while. And, um, I'm just saying that cause if people do get into your show and they see a lull in it, they're like, Oh my God, he's not doing this anymore. Yeah. Cause this yeah, interview I, I, that we're recording tonight, this interview is also going to be on your show as well. Yeah. And, uh, I'm going to try to upload that as soon as possible, but definitely I'm taking about a two week vacation and just walking away from everything. Okay. All right. Well, um, <laughs> Aaron, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. It's been a lot of fun, and we'll just jump into the interview with E.R. Werner about his return to Lilith, and we talk about vampires as well. I think we talk a little bit um, about Crowley, um, the personification of the devil. We touch back on that again. Um, he did bring up Bella Lugosi, which is probably my favorite uh 
person to play um, Dracula. So you know, it's you know, it's a, it's about an hour long interview. We do lose him somewhere in the uh, Skype call. The Skype just drops right out. I'm gonna have to do a little bit of editing in there. Hopefully, it won't be very noticeable in the show. If it's kind of noticeable because I haven't edited the show yet, of course, I'll be an ass about it and make it blatantly known <laughs> that something crazy happened, and then we'll jump back into the interview. So again, Aaron, thank you, and uh, I will see everybody else at the other side. Thanks, Rojan. It was a uh, honor talking to both of you. No problem. Thanks. All right, so tonight we have returning guest Eric Werner, and since my co-host is off at a wedding right now, we have Aaron David from Charm the Water on here as well. Um, Aaron, this is actually your first appearance on here. We've, we've, as usual with us, we're doing things kind of out of order, but we have Eric here to talk about his book, Lilith, the ancient lore to modern culture. And last time we had you on here, it was to talk about at time you had just released your vampire book. And back then I'd asked you a little bit about Lilith, but you really didn't seem to, uh, you didn't have as much research put into it and you weren't able to find a whole lot. Right. And now you've written an entire book about it and you've gone back and re-researched the whole topic. So right. did this come about because I know you're getting ready to re-release your vampire book and we're going to go into that a little bit later. But I'm curious, is, um, did you find more information when you're going back and doing more research for your vampire book? Yes, actually, um, both of these books were redone and... Part of the reason is I just kept finding more and more information. Fans kept sending me stuff, or I'd run across other books. Um, yeah, and the the vampire book specifically was redone for several reasons, but I'll get into that uh, when that topic itself rolls around. All right, so let's start with the beginning of Lilith, because to my knowledge, Lilith was from everything that I've always understood, she was Adam's original first wife. Now, we're going to get all biblical on everybody here, but I assure you we're going to get to the sexy time. But um, she was Adam's original first wife, and then they were supposed to get time to do the sexiness, and Adam was like, all right, let's go at it. You lay down, and she's like, no, I want to be on top. Things went south. She was kicked out of uh, the Garden of Eden, and then Eve came along. Is that basically how it all went down, or does she even go further back than that? Uh, that is accurate as far as the uh, uh, Jewish folklore, but yes, Lilith does predate uh, Christianity and Jewish uh, religious texts by probably a good five hundred years. So, mm. how how did how did she ended up making into the Jewish text? What was before all this came along? What was she before she was part of the Jewish texts? Well, quite literally, she was the basis um, uh, of the wind demons of Samaria and ancient Babylon. And because the Babylonians became so involved with the Egyptians, the Egyptians in turn had uh, the Jewish people with them. Uh, like everything else, it just became a handed down and altered concept from one group of people, travelers, uh, you know, oral traditions, because there wasn't a lot of writing, you know, back then. I want to jump in here if I can. Uh, sure. By the way, thanks for having me, Rojan. Eric, great to meet you. Uh, enjoyed your book. I really am pleasantly surprised by how well it's researched. 
Thank you. Um, you talk about the Lilitu, Lilitu mythos. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm fascinated by that. And I think it's great. Rojan has you on at this time of year talking about Lilith because literally everything about Lilith, all the zombies, vampires, demons, ghouls, she's the mother of, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, I pretty much, you know, I'm a big fan of not only ancient history because I'm kind of a nerd. Uh, you know, that's the academic side of me. But I also absolutely love uh, vampire zombies, you know, film. I, I've written books on both uh, of those subjects outside of Lilith, too. Um, and what's funny is in the book Zombie Nation that I reprinted uh, and expanded um, simply because when I write for Schiffer, they kind of rushed me through a lot of my work. And so I've taken my titles back and republished them through Dark Moon Press by expanding the editions. And that's how I get away with it. Um, you know, Lilith has mentioned in uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is you know, one of the earliest written works of man of fiction that predates the Bible by, I'd say, close to 800 years or possibly more. Mm-hmm. And talks about um, the, the gates of hell being thrown open and when the dead walk the earth. And it talks about Lilith in there as well. So you have, uh, you know, zombies and Lilith in one of the oldest fictions of man. And, and you know, obviously, <clears throat> when when you're talking about something that, uh, predates most people's immediate conception of it. Oh, it came from the Bible, or it w- was Jewish mythology. Yeah, they're not incorrect, mm-hmm. but it, it it has its origins deeper back than that. Well, I know you've been on Project Archivist at least a couple other times. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not really familiar with you, and I know you're certainly not familiar with me. I'm a, I have a Pentecostal Calvinist background, and I'm currently calling myself a Hermeticist. Okay. And I have, an, I have an experience that kind of interested me in this Ishtar Inanna thing going on. My question to you is, what drew you to being interested in Lilith? Um, I guess because she is the, one of the most pivotal, pivotal archetypes uh, in all of man's conscious history that represents uh, rebellious women who are free thinkers, free spirited and, and uh, you know, want to be who they are fully, completely without any oppression. Uh, it crosses all um, racial boundaries and everything. And I'm a big proponent of people, you know, basically striking out and being individualist. So, you know, uh, I, I'm currently writing uh, a book on Lucifer for the same uh, academic, biblical, and uh, historical um, research level as I did Lilith, if not longer uh, winded, sorry. <laughs> mm. But, uh, you know, to me, these aren't just figures of ultimate evil that most people immediately have a knee jerk reaction to them. They actually represent aspects of our humanity and what makes us uh, unique and not like animals is we have free will. We have uh, good and so-called you know, negative aspects to our personalities. And that's why in the, the revamped version of this book, I actually included an entire chapter on um, what Lilith represents to us as not only an archetype, but in psychological uh, understandings. Would you um, 
typically in magical arenas, uh, I know you're more left hand path, <coughs> and uh, I don't know if you know if you want to. Anyway, point is, would you say you have more of a psychological model than a spirit model, or are you open to spirits and stuff? I know you have some paranormal books. Um, my paranormal books are kind of, uh, I'd say they're accepted with the paranormal community because they respect my level of research, but I am a very openly skeptical, ob- objective thinker. Um, I approach all of this stuff from a research and historian viewpoint that I just happen to love all the so-called darker aspects of humanity. And it fascinates me to try to understand people better, and, and I try to be as unbiased as possible. Um, so when I'm reporting all these things, I'm, I'm doing secondhand stories or interviewing people and getting them to expose what they think, what they feel, what they've seen, or what they claim to have seen. Um, So I'm just basically a curious skeptic who is a reporter. And, you know, because I treat them with respect and I don't call them crazy, they respect me in return because I'm just trying to help them get their thoughts across to everyone. And I think that's why I'm looked upon as, I guess you could say, so-called expert. You know, I've spoken at Dragon Con and other large conventions uh, for people. I do a lot of horror and paranormal conventions, radio interviews constantly for years. Um, So a lot of of my work is basically my own personal research and by getting to know other experts in the field that have been around far longer than me that pointed me in the right direction. Very cool. Um, going back to Lilatu Mythos and Lamashtu, I was fascinated by this idea of Lilith and child abduction kind of uh, correlation. Mm-hmm. And you brought up, uh, in I think it's chapter one of your book, Lullaby. And oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? That was a, a new aspect that wasn't in the original book. And a friend of mine was actually speaking to me about it, and he came from a part of the world where it was prominent in their culture, and he told me that that's the root uh, etymology of the word for lullaby uh, was the lalitu part. And he said that the word actually meant uh, to away or chase Lilith away, And, and that's why they sang lullabies to their children to keep them safe. If I could jump in for one second, there is um, let's back up a little bit to talk about how you uh, you talk about in the book where when a child is born that Lilith would have domain over the child. I believe if it was a male, it was like eight days, and if it was a girl child, it was longer. So there is this idea of we need to have something to repel her away and keep her away, um, because if she would get the child, I believe she would kill them or consume them and turn them into a demon or something like that. Is that how it worked? Yeah, the, the stories varied little by little from whoever was telling it. Um, but this was this was taken a little bit more off of the Lamashtu and the Greeks. Uh, when they used the word Lamia, you know, they, they borrowed it from this same time period. I would say this is around, uh, uh, I, I can't pin it down specifically, but... Uh, we're, we're also right. Textual criticism is pretty iffy. Yeah, yeah, it's very hard to pin everything down from specifics other than uh, broad general strokes sometimes when it's this complicated and there's so many different passages from 
multiple different faiths uh, scripts, and some of them were simultaneous. Others were, you know, eons before. So this was a very difficult book to research, um, trying to get everything as explained as simply as I could without making it way overly academic. And I'm afraid that it somewhat still comes across that way to a lot of readers. Oh, it's fine, though. Yeah, it's fine. (laughs) Yeah, I I really enjoyed it. Yeah. You know, that's the hard part as a writer because, you know, I've got background in, in college and everything, and I think always multiple steps ahead of what, you know, most people my age were even when I was a kid. So when I researched topics of, of this depth, um, the difficulty always lies when you're trying to teach it to other people or go on uh, radio interviews or lecture at events is bringing, mm-hmm. bringing it down without talking down to people or talking over their heads. You know, a lot of my professors yeah, say, well, you got to dumb down your work for people. <laughs> Well, I think the etymology and her, her her origin story is really interesting. I mean, um, you talk about Lil and Air and mm-hmm. uh, the kind of idea of that. Can you kind of expound on that? Well, the the one of the earliest versions of her uh, was that she was a wind demon for the Mesopotamian region. And they didn't have a word that they considered evil. They just listed things like... Uh, death, disease, darkness, storms, because they were right next to the sea, and that's how they made their livelihood unless they were farmers, is when these things came up and scared them, they would basically pay homage to the wind spirits that were causing it, and Lilith, or Lilil, was uh, one of the prominent uh, feminine versions of the three spirits. I I just got really scared then, because when you were talking about that, um, my girlfriend Kelly is out on the front porch and she yelled like something scared, <laughs> scared me. <laughs> so Bro, you got any? No, go. I, uh, I, I, I actually, I hate to interrupt you because you're asking really good questions. So it's kind of like, this is making the job very easy for me, <laughs> but, um, I do want to go back into though, this concept of, um, Lilith was, um, back to the whole garden of Eden thing when she was kicked out, uh, according to the, <laughs> Jewish texts, Adam and Lilith were both created at the same time from the earth. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Yes. And she wasn't more or less trying to be bossy or anything. She was more or less just trying to, re- she presented herself as an equal. And that was right. why she was rejected. What I found, exactly. oh, go right ahead. I'm sorry. What was that? Exactly. And that's one of the predominant aspects of her persona that has not changed as every other aspect about her seems to have changed through the ages up until current time period is um, she has always been a strong proponent for or representation actually in literature uh, of, of demanding equality and when she was pushed aside by more of a well I hate to say it a, a chauvinist misogynistic uh, religion of its day um, it was basically a way to justify the behavior that man has foisted upon women for Decades. Now, what I found really curious was that even after she was kicked out of the Garden of Eden, there is still reference that Adam that Adam hooked up with her, and yeah. there are references that she became the bride of God, and in other stories, she became the bride of Satan. Which you even talk about the uh, the show Lucifer currently on television yeah. <laughs> that 
uh, tr- what the heck is her name? I can't remember uh, the one that was uh, from Battlestar Galactica, um, the hot chick. Um, and <laughs> the hot chick. There's there's your reference. But she right. actually in the show that uh, she is Lilith in that show, and she is the uh, the 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 bride of of God in that show, Lucifer. She's mm-hmm. Lucifer's mom. So yeah, they clearly did their homework well. Yeah, but. I never knew any of this stuff pertaining to that legend because I've always heard stories and things like that, that God originally had a bride and, and there was another one, but that's kind of all been whitewashed and pushed aside for the most part. And then yeah. imagine my surprise when I mean, and it was turned out, well, Lilith ended up becoming the bride of God after getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And I was like, huh, that's kind of a head scratcher. <laughs> so how does all that, is, is there a way that all that works together? Or again, is this kind of like a fairy tale kind of thing where all of these different offshoots of the same story? Um, I think they're all offshoots of similar threads because everybody changed things at their own whim whenever it got passed around. I mean, when you're thinking of civilization in the Mediterranean region, which includes everything um tying in with uh, Egypt and uh, Greece, you know, that chunk of, um, of the world was so tightly, you know, together. Um, for them, they had to travel a lot and everything. But w- when we look at it now, uh, it's much more um, condensed. And, and so even given 500, 1,000 years, it's so tightly woven together, but by the time that it even slips from there into the 1700s into the rest of Europe, uh, and then she changes uh, huge into something a little more similar to what we're in popular culture and fiction used to, um, it, it just kind of was tweaked or reworked by every culture in the area that wanted to put Mm. their influence they all wanted to somehow claim her story and rewrite it in a way that made sense for them it's just such a juxtaposition because how do you go from being the equal of adam to the bride of god to the bride of satan and then literally (laughs) becoming demonized it's like you know what the hell how do you go down that road you know (laughs) yeah yeah i think it's mostly because it wasn't each of those pieces that you're mentioning came from different people's version of what she evolved from after the mm-hmm. expulsion of Eden. It's not, and, it wasn't just one people that said, we're going to make her do this, then this, then this. It was multiple factions mm. all taking her as their own and having their own interpretation of what she was afterward. I think for me, being a former uh, fundamentalist evangelical uh, this Judaic interpretation of her uh, from Genesis really fascinates me, what Rose kind of pushing in on. Um, what I found most fascinating is Genesis 127. Um, they kind of indicated there was somebody already here before Eve for Adam. Right. I thought that was really fascinating. I'd never heard any... Buddy, elaborate on that in my time in uh, Orthodox Christianity, unless they were reading from Dake's Bible, but that's another story. But it, is, yeah. it gets kind of glossed over, though. It gets kind of just, well, that happened, and we're not going to talk about that anymore. Moving on. You know, that's... Right. right. And, and a lot of things were done that way, because during their time period that this was being talked about and created, uh, it was important for them. But as time passed, when the church saw that it might be an actually a rallying cry 
for, you know, usurping their matriarchal power, of course they're going to squash it and try to bury uh, the Jewish mythos because that challenges, uh, even in a story, mentally, them being uh, the person in charge. Um, they kind of had to do that. It, it, it became almost necessary to try to make her into a forgotten being. We're still sticking in this Jewish thing. I'd like to go ask about Samael next. Samael, of course, from Jewish sources, is sort of the same thing as Satan, right? Uh, yeah, I mean... <laughs> here's another aspect of my research on lucifer and, and you know for my other book in this one where it kind of crosses over i did a lot of my research simultaneously because they overlap so much and so i had trouble you know splitting the the tales apart to go in different books um, because it's so convoluted and intertwined it depends on what person you speak to, what researcher, what biblical scholar, uh, some people would say that, well, there was Lucifer and then all the angels that followed him from the fall, that all the individual ones like Asmodeus and uh, Belzebub, Belial, all of these, that they were strictly separate, different, uh, lesser angels or lesser demons. Uh, you know, and I, I highly recommend Michelle Belanger's Dictionary of Demons to help sort out the mess, too. Yeah, that kind of delves into the Goetia, right? Yeah, definitely. And then you've got other branches of Christianity and prior that say that, no, it was all one, and you know it was just different words were the same one, and it gets very sticky. So that's why I say it's very convoluted. Because some texts don't say that it's the devil. Some say it's Satanel. Others say it's Asmodeus. I, so, in in my tradition, I look at Asmodeus as the son of Samael. Yeah, and that's um, what I got most often in the references that I found, is uh, that Lilith and Satan had offspring, and you know Asmodeus was one of them. And then you also get the 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 stories about the Leviathan, and you know their offshoot became in, in one story. It, it actually indicated to me, uh, someone told me that, I don't even know if I put this in the book, somebody told me at one of my classes when I lectured about it, they said that um, one of the offspring was connected to David and Goliath. Uh, I don't remember which one, I, I think it was Goliath, uh, was actually one of the... Um, yeah, that sounds like the Nephilim. Yeah, and they're talking about the flaming sword uh, and that ties in with Lilith as you know, connected to the Lightbringer, and you know she had the flaming sword that protected the Garden of Eden, so no one would come back mm. through. So it changes no matter who's telling the story. Uh, so, it, but I found it fascinating. If you want to take a mythicist view to scripture, you bring up even the name Delilah, and it has that Lil in there. Right. That I thought that was really, really fascinating. Um, but the thing about uh, her being married to God, that's very loosely put together from the Kabbalist theory when the Adonai was the human representative of not only the, the kingdom, the king, but he was the earthly representation of the uh, masculine deity of God. Um, and in the temple, the Temple of Solomon, actually, uh, they felt that the, the king could not be without a female partner and basically a goddess. And 
then Lilith became his consort. So it was more of a symbolic uh, version of God marrying you know, Lilith, not so much that it was metaphysical that they believed the two divine beings got together. It was more, I guess you could say it was a ritual that they symbolized it that they would do every so often. Well, let me ask you this. It's something I've always been curious about. In your time researching and looking through all of these things, have you ever come across any branches of religion where you had groups of people worshiping Lilith, like you have the patri- you know, the, the, the paragons, all the different gods and things like that? Have you come across any groups of people that, um, for lack of a better term, chose Lilith as a deity and prayed to Lilith for whatever reason? Um, not until Aleister Crowley uh, came around in the 1940s. Uh, he saw her as a very powerful uh, sexualized aspect and used her quite often in his uh, you know, rituals around the time of the Golden Dawn. Um, and then, of course, that obviously influenced modern New Age pagans and especially the left-hand path that aren't Satanists, but they're more uh, Luciferian and, you know, whatever off-branch you want to name them, mm-hmm. uh, the people that see uh, the devil and Lilith as the uh, god and goddess of, you know, the dark, you know, to, uh, to paraphrase. You said one of her symbols was a woman on a lion. Mm-hmm. The first thing I thought of was Crowley and Babylon. Yeah, and, and that's where you get a lot of the imagery. Uh, well, Crowley took most of his imagery from his research into the older texts um, because that's all they had to go by was when he traveled and went to different parts of Europe and did his mountain climbing and everything else. If you know a lot about Crowley's background. Yeah. um, Yeah. I just, uh, he was very, just read his biography. Okay. So, you know, he was very heavy into going to the places and finding out more for himself. It wasn't just, Oh, he picked up a book and found it. He didn't have the internet like we do now. So, you know, for him, he was fascinated by, you know, the things that were in England um, because it was around that same time when the Bernie relief. I was uh, just going to ask you about that yeah, next. You've got the two lions together. You've got the two owls and the owls are mentioned about the screeching owl and flying, you know, through the desert, which actually symbolizes uh, Lilith as the screech owl fleeing the Garden of Eden. There's been a lot of interest in the Bernie relief as of late, uh, due to some popular occult podcast. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I'm fascinated by her eyes. Uh, it's a very well sculptured relief, but her eyes just kind of seem to be jabbed in there. Well, one of the things that I've run across recently myself in, in researching it more to try to pad my lectures is there's some people out there with that, with some, level of credibility in their research and, and their own education that are trying to question if the Bernie relief truly was Lilith at all, even though right. that's, that is the common scholarly opinion and the, the, you know, culture that studies it and people that are somewhat familiar in uh, pagan circles will say, yes, that's her. But others will say that, oh no, it's Ishtar because of the symbols that she's clutching in that sculpt. Uh, the circular and the staff uh, were very much a part of mm-hmm. uh, prior goddesses before Lilith. And, and that's why in the first chapter of this book, um, I do make mention of other goddesses of the, the, the mother goddess archetype before I even talk about Lilith, because everything is borrowed and plagiarized from everything else. 
And so right. I'm not going to I'm not going to debate the fact that the Bernie relief is or isn't Lilith per se, but I think they it, artists have the liberty to be creative and take aspects of what they know. So who's to say they weren't incorporating both into the same piece of art? Right. I think you could do a good <clears throat> job at bringing up sort of her archetypal nature, and you talk about Ishtar, Inanna, Astarte, Venus. Yeah. Um, Aphrodite, you do a Easter. really good job. <laughs> really good job with this. Uh, Thank you. And I do try to cite my sources throughout the book because I know there's somebody out there who's going to, you know, think they've researched as much or more than me and want to tear me apart in a review. So I do list what authors and books and, you know, uh, I have a pretty hefty bibliography at the end of the book as well as. You do. Uh, I saw that. It was like, you're like, if you're interested in this stuff, read this. And then there's like, wall of text crits you for 9,000 damage. It's just, you've got every person that you cited in the book listed in the back, and it's pretty extensive. I I, I need to do that with this one and the Lucifer book simply because there's so many people out there um, who are either, A, they're experts themselves, and they're going to notice if I made a mistake, and at least they can see where I took it from and correct me and say, hey, this source was wrong. Or you, you're going to have internet warriors, uh, new age people that'll read it and say, well, I saw this on whatever website, so it didn't say that, so you're wrong. Let you me know, ask so you uh, one thing, not to cut you off, but I'm going to forget if I don't. You've got a passage in here talking about the whole night hag syndrome and oh, yeah. how these things are attributed to Lilith, which is where the term hag ridden comes from. So when somebody mm-hmm. comes in, they're all like, like, they come in the morning, they got a hangover or something. Wow, you look pretty hag ridden. <laughs> um, what other legends like these are these attributed to? Like, I read in here that you've got the male version of a succubus, which is the incubus. And right. is, is Lilith supposed to be responsible for all of these things, or is she the mother of all these things? Or, um, for the most part, yeah, I would say it's pretty accepted, um, especially when you're starting to go from the Jewish to the early Christian and travelers as this topic was broached not only in the more egyptian region but it started to move into europe that's when all the vampire legends and stuff started to circulate and that's the other part of our topic tonight is uh lilith being the mother of all the dark creatures and in in this case it would be more incubus succubus is a specific masculine and feminine um a night creature that preys upon men or, or women and has intercourse with them while they sleep. Yeah, the, the the gist of all this seems to be don't enjoy sex because if you do, you're going to turn into a demon or you're going to die. <laughs> but you quite literally, it's what it is because everything. It's go ahead. <laughs> Have you guys ever had that happen? Like a, <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> Have Have you guys ever had a uh, an experience like that? Well, uh, this this is is, uh, this is both paranoid people who feared spirits and creatures and every bump in the night. And they had to have a label for it. And they felt comfortable by pinning it on a mythical creature. Or it was also a very puritanical uh, aspect of sex is evil. Don't enjoy. So therefore, if you're going to have nocturnal emissions or, you know, sexy dreams, that must be the work of the devil or, you know, his minions or Lilith's children, you know, the incubus or succubus. So they, they wanted to excuse away the naughty feelings they had. So mm. 
you know, maybe I'm being a bit too harsh in criticizing them, but that's how it's come across yeah. to me in research. I don't think you're being harsh well, enough. <laughs> no, I, I can, I can, I, I see your skepticism coming out. I've had that experience. In fact, why I'm interested, why I bought the book and was like, yes, I want to read this. I'm going to get a little off kilter here. As a hermetic magician, my first conjuration was of Venus and to initiate into the sphere of Netsock. In a dreamscape, like the most real dreamscape I've ever had, a woman showed up in a black wig. Something was wrong with her eye. She came, she talked to me, told me things, <laughs> prophetic things. Next thing in, you know, this like black goat shows up and takes its face off. I had poltergeist activity in the house. I had about 30 flies showed up. And at that point I was like, shit, this stuff actually works. It does something. <laughs> well, uh, I, I will caveat this before because I've been trying to think of a nice way of saying it. I have a lot of friends who are of all religions or no religion at all. And as a writer and researcher who has fans of every demographic age group and religion or, or sexual orientation or whatnot, I'm very careful in my writing. And I know you mm. guys probably have figured this out, but for anybody out there listening who wants to pick up any of my books, let alone this one, I do try to be as unbiased as possible on my personal yeah. opinion and interpretation. I will make a few speculative comments in my books, but mm -hmm. it's, it is as unoffensive and objective as humanly possible when I write. So that I, I'm I would agree. I'm reporting facts and what I am trying to weave an idea together, but I try not to be offensive. And when I am telling you guys what I think, when I'm criticizing or objecting to, you know, certain aspects of ritual or the paranormal or ghosts or spirits, that's me giving you my personal opinion outside of my books. Yeah, there's nothing okay. wrong with that. That's fine. You know, that's otherwise it would be very clinical and very academic. You, you've got to have some opinion and things like that in there. Um, <laughs> I don't think I could write a book quite like this because I would definitely be way too opinionated. <laughs> it's hard. Yeah, well, everything that I'm seeing in this book, for the most part, especially in regards to Lilith, is that what it's saying is if you are a female and you enjoy sex, then we're literally going to demonize you. This is something that you should not enjoy. And if you do, you're a harlot because you even yeah. mentioned here at one point that she's considered a, a prostitute of one of the gods or something along those lines, that she is yeah. literally considered a prostitute at one point. And yeah. You know, she it's like, what's the matter with a chick going out and enjoying having sex? I don't, I don't quite get this, but that, that's the way things were back then. It was very pure and very pure. Well, I mean, there are consequences. There's venereal diseases, there's pregnancy, there's like all sorts of real time consequences to these things. And I think that's why she's a darker goddess. I mean, mm -hmm. at one point you mentioned abortion in relation to her in the book and it, like this idea of the dark goddess and to take it to like a psychological uh archetypal thing uh can you expound on that why she is considered a dark goddess like why i mean we've already hit on the judeo-christian stuff is suppressed feminine stuff but i mean is there anything dangerous in Lilith, or do you think that this is just all suppressed sexuality and suppressed feminism? Is there anything really dangerous about her you see? Um, like everything, uh, anything can be taken to extremes. Um, 
th- there's a lot of people who would use her as such a strong archetype and rallying cry for everything from Never Again the Burning Times to All Men Are Evil, They Try to Rape Us sort of thing. Um, the Lilith Fairs w- with the, you know, in the 1980s, 90s, I believe it was, yep. uh, a lot of people were very extremist. Not that all of them were, but you know, a lot of the radical lesbian feminists or whatever were man bashing. So I guess that's the only thing I could find that, from the psychological aspect of Lilith, that could be pointed to if it taking into a fanatical level. But that's that way with anything. Uh, by and large, she was more in this case, in this chapter, because each one of these chapters could be an interview in itself. Um, She is the rallying cry for people to not be doormats. You know, I I talk a lot about how uh, Adam, by society standards, the masculine person, even in today's world, um, Adam means man. And men are supposed to have the goody, two-shoes, Stepford wife, perfect female of Eve. And yet he deep down secretly wants Lilith, who's naughty and opinionated and a free spirit mm-hmm. and a bad girl. Um, and right, also, you brought that out. Yeah. yeah I think it's that was a, really interesting. Uh, that, that was me speculating with a friend of mine. And then I did some research and dug deeper into it from other people that are more unions. Uh, and they agreed with me. You know that. Well, if you if you want to take a Jungian like perspective, okay, Lilith would be the unconscious. You get, you go into this or the shadow self, not necessarily unconscious, but shadow self. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, all right, uh, anything to expound on there? <laughs> yeah, a lot. I mean, the the ego and the id. You know, the the subconscious of us that's more passionate in our baser instincts, our wants, and our you know whiny little child that says "gimme." Uh, to to dumb it down for regular people to understand, it's the part of you that deep down just says "I want, I want, I want." It's the ego and your own desires that would be the Lilith part that is suppressed in people because. How you're supposed to behave in society is more the Eve with the Stepford wife. Um, and even men can have this part of their psychology. It's in astrology and people's natal charts. It doesn't show up very often, but in some people, the dark phase of the moon will show up in their <coughs> chart. And that's actually the representation of Lilith and people who are probably overly focused in their um darker aspect of their nature and it can lead to detrimental uh overstepping of uh spiraling into despair and you know um things like that but Mm -hmm. i think like everything you should use common sense and say well these are just aspects it's like yin and yang it's not one it's not good versus evil it's just the different aspects of someone's personality you quote jeffrey smith and uh saying that adam identified with his own ego and not with his full self. And of course the first Jungian step is to integrate your shadow self or you're calling that Lilith, right? Uh, or you could yeah. call that Lilith. You said that Lilith and Lucifer or Lilith and Samael, Satan, whatever you want to, uh, I think you specifically said Lucifer are so tied together as kind of mates in that picture of ego, uh, shadow self, who is Lucifer? 
Uh, Lucifer is just the masculine version of the repressed, defiant. Uh, it's the manifestation of our carnal nature. Uh, everything society frowns upon or says that is bad that we're supposed to, you know, not feel or enjoy. Um, that, that's why, you know, not that I wanted to bring this up, but the Church of Satan uses the Satan as their archetype uh, of their philosophy. Uh, it's very much the same way. In this specifically for Lilith, it's just um, women who are called the whores, you know, because they're they're given into their sexual urges. They want freedom. They want better pay at jobs, things like that. It definitely mm -hmm. still has uh, manifestations in modern day life uh, for for women. If you were to ask anybody out there, they're going to give you their opinion on. Uh, equal job, equal pay, how they're treated, you know, as sexual objects, and some people don't like mm -hmm. it, you know, but if you do like it, then you're bad, because, you know, they want their cake and eat it, too. That's where I was going to go next, is how is Lilith fitting into modern times? And then from there, I want to go into the vampire thing, but um, I kind of want to take this in that direction. How, because Lilith seems to be making, as you stated earlier with the Lilith Fair and all these things, seems to be making some kind of comeback as a yeah. um, representation for strong females, which, yeah, sure, go for it. You know, that's fine with me. Is she still viewed as this evil harlot in modern times, or are things changing? Is she morphing? Is, is she still, you know, how, how is she represented these days, and how is she looked at? That's fascinating. It's one of the reasons why I wanted to throw myself into the last part of this book and the entire vampire saga, is both of these beings, for better word, is... Uh, it's always an ever-evolving archetype, but it's always going to have to retain some of its core original aspects, or it loses total meaning of what it is to be called that. Um, it, it does change, and it becomes a little less sometimes, but I think it's more therapeutic, or if you're looking at uh, fantasy, um, I, I guess in the Lucifer TV show, because I'm a big fan of that show, the, the character Lilith in there, she was very uh, naughty and seductive. You know, so, you know, she did have those older qualities, but she was very much a proponent of uh, stand up for yourself female. So I think in things like uh, the Lucifer show and how she's depicted in other works of fiction in you know the last 20 years, she clearly is changing a bit in how we're perceiving her as more of an anti-hero than a villain. Mm -hmm. I haven't watched TV in a while, but I think of Frasier's <laughs> Lilith from Cheers. <laughs> yeah. Is there, is there any luck for, is there any hope for poor Frasier? I mean, have you got, have you guys heard um, the latest news story coming out of Hollywood about Harvey Weinstein? Vaguely, I, I haven't been keeping up on it too much. Sexual abuse allegations coming out of the woodwork. And his excuse was that, well, I'm from this other era, like 1960s, 1970s, yeah. where this is just how things worked. Uh -huh. And so you, he's run across women today that in Hollywood aren't putting up with his perversions and abuses. And... Mm -hmm. I think it's awesome because I, I think it's interesting that you write this book, that people are getting interested in this type of thing. 
and that like old school Adam age or Adam Aeon or whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think we're coming back into this goddess thing where women are becoming empowered once again, but it's like a pendulum swing and they're enraged at being repressed for so long. So I don't think this is, we're not seeing normative like things going on. This is like Lilith enraged in, in, in our society right now. Yeah. She becomes repression. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think that since this book came out and even its original draft, that was, you know, 80 pages less, um, this is one of the books that has continually sold uh, more than a dozen copies uh, just off Amazon from people randomly finding it uh, to me selling, you know, 2,000 of them on my own going around the country giving lectures and signing them for people. And, and it clearly shows to me that this is year after year since it came out <coughs> that uh, there's very few books on Lilith out there for one. So mm-hmm. I am used to be put up there. Uh, you know, and be selling that strongly. It shows that people are respecting the level of work I put into it, and I'm very happy with that. Mm-hmm. But it also shows on the other side from, you know, taking me out of the equation, when you look at that from a snapshot of the the very amount of people that are buying it and what they're thinking and telling me when I give a talk is, it, it very much still is a very strong character for them to relate to that isn't just the villain of old religion that, you know, it's put in Scooby-Doo and Supernatural and, you know. Yeah, Lily pops up in a Scooby-Doo <laughs> episode. What's up with that? <laughs> yeah, uh, that surprised me when I ran across it. It's like, you know, it, it's become such a part of culture to identify with her with, you know, of course they're going to tweak it and change things up. That's what they do. It was do. a X-Files episode, too. Yeah. But, you know, you are seeing her more and more being the anti-hero as opposed to being the villain. And I think that's a great idea. So moving along, um, that's cut you off, Aaron, but I need, we need to get into this because we're, we've been at close Definitely. for minutes. Wampires. Um, Lilith was the first vampire, supposedly, um, which I've also heard. The, there's also the biblical legend out there about uh, one of the people that that. Um, was that Jesus, whether he was on the cross, becoming a vampire from his blood or so forth. But I've always heard the story of Lilith supposedly being the first vampire. Since we're going to go into talking about your vampire book and how you've updated it, let's start there with Lilith being the first vampire. How did that all come about and where did that take place? Um, That basically, it comes from the same uh, time period of her being uh, the mother of the succubus and incubus, uh, I wasn't as aware of, and I'm going to have to, you know, tweak that in my manuscript now that you mentioned it. Uh, I hadn't heard about the part about Jesus on the cross. So that's definitely something I'm going to investigate and add oh, really? to it. You've as never I'm heard of finishing. that? Aaron, yeah, am, I, am I right on that? Have you ever heard yeah, that story? Yeah, so you... you really... uh, I don't know. Uh-uh. <laughs> okay, moving on. <laughs> <laughs> So anyways, uh, yeah, we can maybe edit that out, I guess. Um, yeah, but there is a story I, I of... Um, if, it, if it's true, then I definitely well, want you, to include... You hear it being brought up in um, a couple of um, the uh, Vampire Lestat stories and things like that. Uh, actually, I think it might, uh, might be in the Vampire Lestat, if I remember correctly. That might be uh, the first time I heard uh, it. Was it in Memnock, perhaps? I don't remember. I know it's in one of the Anne Rice books, though. Maybe it's in... Uh, it wasn't the Lestat book. It was one of the other books about the other individual vampires that she did. 
but there is a story in there about uh and it's all it is based in it is based in folklore that um one of the longilists i believe his name is i know i'm pronouncing that wrong i apologize guys but the yeah, one that threw yeah. the spear uh, the blood of christ um apparently made him a vampire and that's that is also one of the mythos that's out there that's where Anne rice got that mythos from so okay you know i could be wrong i don't know check into it you know <laughs> go yeah. for it you're giving me more to do this week <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> oh no uh, i'm actually very appreciative because uh like i started to tell you guys earlier in the hour uh, a little backstory on this particular book and why i'm expanding it is uh even deeper uh personal importance to me than the other ones that i've taken back from schiffer is Schiffer publishing came to me asked me to write a book on vampires because the current author they had at that time bailed on them, and that was my editor's words, uh, and they wanted me within six months to write the world history of vampires, and I couldn't go over 200 pages. I remember you saying that last time we were on the show, and we were kind of scratching our heads going, yeah, that's that's okay. <laughs> so, so I'm evolution of the vampire the book into history of the vampire through dark moon press my company and it's already close to 300 pages in smaller font than i originally wrote it so it's almost double in information than the original book because you cannot take the world history on any subject let alone vampires that that there's you know a thousand movies and five to eight hundred books uh, on the planet and condense it all down into something that makes sense that doesn't read like a you, you turn the page and you have five different references of right. you know like almost like an encyclopedia yep did we lose him uh, I think so yeah he broke up a little bit before that so I think we did That escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. You just got through talking about Anne Rice. Yeah. Which I was going to say I'd read the first two. I think Lestat is the second one. But anyway. Well, what I did is um, I pulled up a whole bunch of related articles. Um, Eric, I'm going to send those to you through a f- Facebook on Instant Message so you'll have some reference material to go off of as well. Okay. So. But uh, yeah. branching back into it, um, what is the legend? Do you know it off the top of your head of Lilith being the first vampire or how she ties into all these vampires? Um, only the, about her being connected to the um, incubus and succubus, who is just another word for uh, vampires, especially with the um, Mori uh, vampire from the Romanian time uh, period when we're talking about how the the legends from I believe it's like the 14th 15th century uh, when the Strigoi is what the Romanians called uh, vampires, witches, werewolves, anything that was uh, scary and bump in the night, they just called it all Strigoi. Um, but the more specific term uh, for the vampires during that time period uh, for that region. Uh, they said that they were the, the succubus that would come to uh, seduce men uh, late at night, and that added to the power of them being a nocturnal creature 
that they would either disappear into mist uh, upon the, the sun coming out. So, are you aware yeah. that there is a there is a Japanese? There are two Japanese vampires that fit very closely the description of what you're talking about. Um, yes. Okay. I didn't know if you knew that or not, or if you thought that they tied into that. Do, do you believe that there's a tie in there, even though they're different cultures, or that this is something that's carried over culturally? Most definitely. I think vampires, uh, unlike almost any other creature um, in folklore and mythology, except for maybe ghosts, uh, every culture on the planet since the beginning of time has their own version of a vampire. And there's several of them in the Orient. Uh, I can attribute uh, fellow vampire researcher Michel Belanger for telling me first about the hopping vampire that when they buried the Chinese, they would tie their toes together so that when they came out of the grave to come after you, they would have to hop because apparently they weren't bright enough to untie their <laughs> you know, toes. Um, so that was interesting. I, I've actually done a DVD documentary with Michelle uh, on vampires that you can find on darkmoonpress.com or get a hold of me on Facebook for a copy. Uh, anybody who orders the History of the Vampire, I'm actually throwing in a free copy of the DVD. Hmm. So, um, yeah, this one a little extra as I'm doing it as a deluxe uh, hardback edition limited. Very to cool. One. So, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get the word out there a little bit more. So I really appreciate you guys having me on. Well, now that you're going back and redoing the vampire book, I have the first one. Actually, I'm looking at it right now. It was you, I, I bought the, uh, I believe it was the hardbound version of it from you. It had a really cool mm-hmm. cover on. I think it was, it was uh, a black book. It looks really cool. Um, yeah. And you were talking about how your publisher had said, all right, you have 24 hours to write us a 900 page book on vampires or something along those lines. <laughs> um, did you actually plan on actually going back and doing this, um, or as, or did you just keep coming across this research as time went along and you said, I need to go back and update this? Um, the, the latter applies more. Um, I was always annoyed or, or maybe flat out upset at being not only the title forced upon me, uh, which I would have enjoyed. I, I loved the topic. Um, but the fact that they wanted it in six months' time and at limited page count, I mean, under 200 pages, give me a break. And that that upset me. But I kept coming across more information. In, in my mind, it kept justifying that it needed to be longer. And so this book is my way of trying to give the buyers what they should have gotten from me in the first place. And although it, it may not be as slick of a packaging – um, I do know that the hardback edition that I'm making, uh, the cover will be just as nice. I just don't have the uh, parchment bright colored pages, although I am trying to do it in color as well. So how um, much further do you go in this book? Is there anything you can talk about that you elaborated on without giving too much of the book away? Is there a couple of chapters in well, that really I'm, stick out to you that you're fond of? Well, I'm, I'm taking elements of other books and articles that I've, I've done in the past and merging them into here so it's all in one place, like Allure of the Vampire, the, uh, which was very centered around the sexuality and appeal of vampires. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm merging that into it, and I put a, a ton of new information on Bram Stoker's Dracula. Oh, and, very cool, very cool. Uh, I'm adding in a lot more history that I found on Dark Shadows because both of those iconic characters were very pivotal pivotal in changing 
the modern archetype of vampires from the earlier shambling Nosferatu uh, of the uh, 1700s and prior, <clears throat> which is very funny because I was supposed to go down to Dragon Con this last year and speak, uh, and I was going to be on a panel with none other than the great nephew of Bram Stoker, uh, uh. Darcy Stoker. And, and he was looking forward to meeting me. He knew this book was coming out around now. And, you know, it was a bummer because I had conflicting uh, scheduling issues uh, back here at home, so I couldn't make it down there, and I wanted to meet the guy. But uh, I promised to get him a signed copy of this, and, you know, we're going to meet at other events next year. Um, um, <laughs> so maybe uh, I'll get him to sign a copy of mine. About Bram Stoker, um, I read that at a very young age, Dracula, and uh, it was very influential on me. I I don't know if there's any young man out there that did not want to be Dracula. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he has uh, all these cool, you know, all power over women and mm-hmm. his vampire chicks, they have there's these seductresses. The Lilith archetype is there too, but um I also in Bram Stoker's Dracula, I don't think there's any more satanic figure in literature that I know of than his Dracula. Right. It very much had that command come hither gaze, which to give the credit to the acting power and lighting effects of the early black and white films, Bella Lugosi captured his, the written attitude more than any other actor, even though special effects and Gary Oldman's depiction uh, in Bram Stoker's Dracula uh, when it came out in the 80s, I believe, um, visually it was more like what the book was. Uh, it is the one character in fiction that everybody all over the world can immediately identify. Uh, for, I don't care whether it's a, a cereal box or, you know, old black and white movies or, you know, the, the name Dracula is synonymous with the word vampire more than any other word in, in its mythos. I don't care whether you say Anne Rice or... Barnabas Collins, Dracula trumps it all. And that says something, even though, or it's time period, Dracula was not and one of the best. And he doesn't sparkle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, don't, don't forget Poppy, Poppy Z. Bright. Don't forget her. Well, I mention her in, in the book. I give her credit. I try to cite everybody that I can who had some sort of influence during different time periods. Mm. Uh, and, and because you mentioned the infamous sparkle, I, I will say that this is the testimony to me proving that I am as objective as possible. I do not bash the Twilight books in this book on vampires. And I'm sorry I'm to hear that. that <laughs> well, do you, in your opinion, is the Bram Stoker Dracula the beginning of the sexualization of, 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 uh, Dra- of vampires? Is that the point where it went from Nosferatu to I am this really cool, sexy dude and you're going to, you know, I have command over you? Well, that, that's where we get into the interesting part of this particular book is I delve even deeper into when he started, to, and when I say he, I mean the vampire, not Dracula, when the vampire began to change in the minds of fiction writers, it was actually evolving prior to Stoker um, by probably a good 80 years with the the people that influenced the, the dark romantic writers and the German poets 
that were around in the late 1700s into the early 1800s is what influenced the Romantic authors and then Dracula, uh, Stoker, right after them. So in a nutshell, it was around the same time period. However, Dracula became the most known. We had Varney the Vampire that predated Dracula, and he was one of the first Penny Dreadful uh, little cheap pulp fiction short stories that they've kept printing tons of them because if you collect all of them into one book, it'd be over a thousand pages. Uh, you know, he was one of the early uh, aspects of the romantic vampire. Lord Byron himself, as a person, personified and gloated and talked about how he was like a vampire. Uh, he was also prone to calling himself, you know, like Lucifer, too. So you're right in saying that Dracula is the, the most satanic version of a fictional character. Uh, Lord Byron would quite agree with you. Um, so it was around Byron's time period to Stoker where we really saw the vampire going more from a zombie-like corpse and a ripped-up shroud to being something that would uh, seduce you. And that was a little bit of an influence from the early succubus incubus legends that the romantic authors seized upon uh, from the germanic poetry of like crystal ball uh, and uh, um, the uh, carmilla uh, yes poetry. yes you know it was the early lesbian vampire yeah and that that predated dracula and that's why uh, dracula you know, stoker kind of gives a nod to that idea when the brides of Dracula are surrounding the narrator and Dracula has to come in and chase them away and say, he is mine and sends his three brides away. They're more based off of the look and feel of the Carmilla era seductress, uh, lesbian vampire. But in this mm -hmm. case, they were, they were probably more bisexual in Stoker's mind. Do you go through it, go into Elizabeth Bathory anymore in, in the new book? <laughs> Not much more than what I had in the previous book because the only way that Bathory is an influence on the vampire mythos is they seized her story and twisted it and changed her into a vampire because as a human, she was just the first female known serial killer. She wasn't a vampire in, you know, oh, real no, life, no, so. no, of course not, no. <laughs> um, you know, there is a really good book that somebody wrote a long time ago uh, called Dracula Was a Woman, and it was one of the scholars uh, that was tied in with the, the Vlad Tepish family. Um, uh, the name McNally. Uh, I've got it on my bookshelf in my library. Um, your library must be massive. I would love to see what your library <laughs> looks like. I mean, I could just walk uh, in there and be like, wow, this is cool. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you, I only know two people that have a better library of occult books, Vampire and the Devil, than I do. And that would be Michelle Belanger, who I've been in her basement, and it's like 10,000 books. Um, there is also Martin Ricardo, an uh, older gentleman who's a professor in uh, Chicago, whose library trumps mine. But um, I get this image I, of I'd you sitting in a chair with a glass of brandy. Just sitting there with like some kind of a smoking, like 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 this Hugh Hefner, like dark looking guy with a glass of brandy, smoking a cigar, like looking over your books, like not in a hermetic way, but like a you know like a, like this wizened you know researcher kind of guy sitting around your house like that, with your cats running around and stuff. You're, yeah, you're gonna tell me, yeah, that's actually how it is, actually. <laughs> well, 
Yeah, um, no cigar, and I, I would say no cigar, and it would be Merlot instead of brandy. <laughs> but you're pretty. Much- <laughs> I I kind of want to go back on you touched on uh, Baldier or these guys, uh, the sort of decadence, uh, mm-hmm. uh, Byron, uh, Tennyson to some extent. These the all these guys are the people who most influenced Crowley at a young age. And I mean, Crowley wanted to be a poet more than an occultist. And he came to like embody the Satanism of these, these poets. Anything to say about that? Uh, I just thought that interesting. Any thulemic thoughts um, or how, how Crowley may have been come to be represented as the devil of his age or this vampiric force upon the world, sucking upon our children, Luring our children away into devil devil worship. Wow, dude, you're getting kind of heavy, man. Well, I I attribute a lot of that. uh, A lot of that, I would attribute the 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 persona that he wanted to project as being the wickedest man alive, and you know he influenced on people's fears. Yeah, I mean, directly influenced by guys like Byron, Tennyson, and Baldier. Uh huh. I mean, I, I definitely think that he latched upon what his resources during his time period, uh, the darker aspects of Lilith and occultism and vampires, everything that was just turn of the century, just a little bit before his time. He just seized upon everything that he knew would scare the crap out of people who were more goody two shoes Christian or even the uh, hermetic golden dawn of, you know, basically. Uh, if you know, if, if the general public listening knows anything about uh, mm-hmm. you know, pre-Illuminati and uh, uh, the the order of uh, what was it, the Rose Rosicrucian? Yes, yes. Uh, it's been ages since I wrote Promethean Flame, and I talked about all of this. Uh, the influences of Crowley uh, from a more occult and hermetic. Uh, viewpoint, but I wasn't as aware that he was so deeply uh, immersed into the dark romantics uh, yeah. shortly after the Victorian period. I, I kind of am fascinated <clears throat> by that because you have this almost seduction of evil and embracing of Satanism overtly by mm-hmm. what does it come through? Poetry. Right. I mean, and uh, so it, it's kind of the continuation of the vampire is the idea of this ultimately romanticized figure um, just so alluring I don't know I'm just talking on my ass <laughs> you're, you're right because the romantic period composed uh, composed of folklore uh, and especially the succubus mythos uh, Cristobal was just uh, influenced by Carmilla and, and that in turn greatly influenced the hammer horror films of 1960s and 70s and just made it more uh, of an imprint in our minds so you know, it was uh, in 1817 when Byron got together with Mary Shelley, you know, the one who created Frankenstein. And I talked quite a bit about that haunted summer um, where it talks about Palidori and Byron and how they had this contest of, you know, putting together what became the iconic roles of Dracula and Frankenstein, you know, the, the classic uh, universal monsters that we're familiar with. I mean, these things had a huge impact uh, on our culture. And, of course, that in turn influenced uh, people like uh, Anne Rice, who, who watched the, 
um, Dark Shadow. She grew up on that, and, and that influenced her writing, which in turn helped polish and shape more people's perception of what the vampire is now. Well, we've had you on here for over an hour now. As always, when we come to the end of the show, I like to give our guests a chance to talk about where people can find their books, what they've got coming in the works, and basically um, promote anything that they want to promote. So um, this is your chance to talk about, you know, where, where can people find your works? Do you have any shows coming up? Do you have any lectures coming up? What is on the horizon for you? Okay. Um, they can find me on Facebook uh, under Corvus Nocturnum. They can find me at CorvusNocturnum.com and email me through there if they want to book me for an event. I have my schedule that I need to update because uh, I've added a bunch of new things. Um, but my schedule is usually posted under appearances and media for contact. Um, I am going to be on uh, Daniel Clay's uh, radio show uh, coming up Monday called uh, Phenomenon. I will be appearing at the bookstore called Once in a Blue Moon in Toledo on the 21st this month. And I'm also doing a lecture on reading and publishing at the Dark Reliquary in uh, Hazel Park, Michigan on the 28th. Um, I'm doing a private event on Halloween, so um, I will be doing things. I am also one of the headline speakers in Salem. For the Para Peeps uh, event from the 9th through the 12th in November in Salem, Massachusetts. Then uh, you can find me also at uh, Hotel Kanye um, on the 18th of November. And that may be the last major event I do for this year. God, I'd hope so. You're busy as hell. <laughs> <laughs> Normally I don't work into November, but this year I got booked for a couple things. Wow. All right. Well, as always, Eric, thank you for coming on the show. You are one of the most intelligent, well-researched guests that uh, that we get to talk to, and it's always a pleasure having you on here. Um, I try to have you on here as much as I can, but you're so incredibly busy, and your schedule is such that it's like, can you fit me in here? Uh, no, but you can try next year on... I, I really appreciate <laughs> the opportunity. I truly do, because a lot of people find me because of podcasts and older podcasts, uh, and the fact that you guys are putting me on two different shows uh, simultaneously, that, that's amazing. And I'm really appreciative. And people can find my work under E.R. Vernor on Amazon as well as Corvus Nocturnum. Um, but hop over to darkmoonpress.com too, guys, because not only is all of my work on there, uh, I publish 43 authors. There's 240 books on that website. You can find other guests through there. Um, and, and, you know, I'm really enormously proud of all of the vampire and paranormal and other, uh, titles that we have on that website. So check it out. Thank you. My tongue is starting to slip up on me. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and it's been great having you. Thank you for being here. Great meeting you. Thank you. E.R. Werner talking about Lilith and vampires once again. I do like it. I got to admit, when somebody else is on the show that is willing to engage, because I can just sit back and be lazy, you know, and just throw a dumb joke in every once in a while. And if I've really got a question, I can throw it in there and ask it. But otherwise, it's kind of like, cool, I'll just sit here and listen along. Now I know how you feel. <laughs> yeah, well, you know. Now I know how you feel. The See? thing it sucks yeah. is... 
Because me and you will will converse back and forth while we're recording an interview, and I'm sending him stuff on Facebook. I'm like, wait, wait a minute, ask him about that because you're in the middle of the conversation, or ask him about that, and he wasn't pay- he was oblivious to all of that. I had no way of contacting him, so it was kind of like, all right, well, off you go, off to the races. You know, the only thing I had to do was just kind of keep it under control to make sure we stayed in time constraints and make sure we cover all the topics we wanted to cover. So, you know, it was it was a lot of fun. It was pretty cool doing it that way. Um, I am kind of a dick, though, because after we were done recording that show, me and Aaron sat down and he more or less gave me and he recorded an interview with me on his show. He just hit record and we started going at it. And I retold the whole dog story about when I was a kid and stuff. But I asked him not to air the interview. And I kind of feel bad about that because he was really happy. He was getting a lot of stuff out of me. But the problem is is I put a little bit too much of my personal information out there. And as a lot of people caught on to and realized, there's only so much of myself that I want to put out there. I don't like putting a whole lot about my family and stuff out there just just for privacy reasons. And as always, everybody's cool about this. You know, I'm, I'm we're pretty open, whereas like you're a little bit more flexible at stuff like that. Me, I get a little bit weird about it um, for various reasons, because we've had people in the past that have bugged me in my private life that were off the wall and kind of strange. So I asked yeah, him. I don't think they do it because I think they're afraid of me. So maybe it, it could be. I got it that could be. going for. Well, we had the one guy that Charlie. Don't you dare go to the bathroom on the rug. So help me God. Are you talking to your dog? I hope you're talking. It better to your be dog. my dog because if it's not my dog, my feet up. Go upstairs. Go lay down. Go outside. Dude, go to the bathroom on the rug. There's something wrong. <laughs> you don't have or a kid named Charlie. <laughs> That's right. Your your dog is called Prince Charles the Third or something like King that. King Charles the Sixth. King Charles the Sixth. Okay. And kids call him. I call him Will Manson because his name's Charles. <laughs> so, anyways, um, Aaron, if you hear this, I I feel very very bad that I I don't want you to run because I know that you were really happy. There is a lot of cool stuff you got out of that, but after I really thought about it, I'm like, I don't know if I want that out there. Because we did have that one guy that got a little too weird with me and was like, you work here and your wife works here and your kids go to school here. I, you know, um, and if that guy's listening, he knows who he is. And it really pissed me off. Well, you know, <laughs> um, Aaron, you can call me. Well, I'm going to go. Shame. He does want to. He actually, he does. He's a big fan of our show. I think he does want to talk to you. But then again, you've got a lot of people that want to interview you that you haven't followed back up on. I so. have one. Soraya. You've got That's Soraya. It. I think Aaron would want to talk to you. And then from what I understand, Amy over at Travel Oddities would like to have us on at some point to, they, they want to talk to us, which I don't, which I'm fine with, but I don't really understand because Travel Oddities is all about going places and seeing things and eating food. Yeah, and nothing to see here. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how we're quite going to fit in there, you know, but Amy's a sweetheart and she's over there with the Travel Oddities thing now. And she knows virtually nothing about sci-fi and and stuff like that. So everybody's giving her all kinds of grief, deservedly so. Yeah, I don't think she knows what Star Wars is. Yeah. I don't think she's ever watched Star Wars, Star Trek. I don't think she's ever watched anything like that. Like, I could show her a picture of Harry Potter, and I think she'd be like, I've never seen The Hobbit. I don't know what this is. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that displeases Dobby. And if she's listening, I know she's going to give us grief for it. But she did express interest in us coming on there and us talking to them, you know, which... They've never asked us. Harley and Brett have never asked us to come on there. And she's like, yeah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay, well, this must be your idea because Harley's never asked us to come over there. They've always talked about it, but it's it's nice to have a woman running the show over there now. I'll say that for us. Wow. So. <laughs> wow. 
hear that, boys? Your testosterone's <laughs> been revoked, fuckers. Amy, Amy's a sweetheart. She really yeah, is. she is. She's, she's really cool. She's a great chick. Um, I do need to send a shout-out to Steph right now, who is smack dab in the middle of the California wildfires. Like Steph that. She's, you know who Stephanie is. Um, do I know who Stephanie is? You, you know who Stephanie is. I have one of her pictures that I captured, and it's on my phone. <laughs> but she, no, weird? she's you're weird. She's literally right in the middle of both of those raging fires in the middle of wine country in Napa Valley. Like, I don't think she could go five miles in either direction and not be in some kind of a fire right now. And why she's even still there, or how they're managing to pull it off, I don't know. I I would be gone, you know, because. They they can go. I think they can go north or south, but the hills on both sides of them are like, hi, we're we're in hell. We're this is inferno, and the winds are picking up. Yeah, she's all ready to go, and apparently, you know, she's been staying in contact with us on the Facebook page and all that stuff. So, but again, I'm like really worried about her, and I even bugged Joe over at Ozone. I'm like, are you in the middle of all this? And he's like, no, but we got a bug out bag ready to go. So, everybody that I know, it's in California around that area. I haven't bugged Greg yet because Greg, I've been paying attention to him on Facebook. Greg Bishop and Bishop seems to be okay. So, you know, but um. That's pretty much it. We're coming up here on the Halloween show in a couple of weeks. We may take one of these next two weekends off, but we will have a Halloween show up for Halloween. I think it's just going to be a ramble cast with maybe a couple of songs. I'm not going to do anywhere near as much songs as we did last year. I'll put some music in it, a couple of good, a couple of groovy, cool tunes. Um, groovy, cool tunes. Uh, yeah. I'm hip, yo. I'm hip. Yeah. If anybody's got some music they want us to play, I, I had one person throw over the Ramones Pet Cemetery, so we might throw that in there and... I probably have, have we to throw. That already? I don't think. Well, we've used Pet Cemetery a long time ago, um, way back in older shows. I believe we have. I don't remember what it was, but I'm sure we've used it at some point. But hey, we'll throw it in there again. I haven't used Bella Lugosi's Dead in a long time, and I I tend to throw that in one way or another almost every Halloween in some form or another. I didn't do it last year, but that's a staple for me, you know. So we'll mm-hmm. probably throw that in there and maybe another song or something like that. But I've got a decent little folder of Halloween kind of related uh, oriented topics to cover all the big ones. So we've got enough Ramblecast links to throw out there. But uh, other than that, you know, the the next big, big seasonal show we got coming up is the Thanksgiving one coming up, the uh, yearly cannibalism feast show, which um, that folder has filled up nicely for the year. Um, mankind has done its job in eating each other as is expected every year. So that's working out pretty well. The fast food folder is already beginning to fill up for this year for next year's show. <laughs> fast food freakouts. As if so, we don't have enough insane people ordering food. Well, there was the whole Rick and Morty incident, the whole Szechuan sauce thing that, uh, I was caught in. <laughs> it wasn't as bad here, though. But I, other parts of the country, it was insane. Because the, the one by my house that was supposed to have it, we went there. And uh, when you walk in the door and there's no signs for the Szechuan sauce anywhere, and it was one of the ones listed on the website, I'm like, hi, do you guys have the Szechuan sauce? And the girl was like, no, sir, we do not have the Szechuan sauce. We did not get our supply, nor do we get our posters or anything. And then she gives me this look like, go ahead, yell at me. I just don't give a shit. And I'm like, okay, yeah, right? um, I'll just get the uh, chicken tenders and uh, what kind of sauce do you want? I don't know. And sweet and sour. I got, yeah, I was like, give me um, give me whatever. that I, already, I didn't get sweet and sour or something else. She's like, all right, here you go, sir. And she was just like defeated. It was like a wave of yeah, Rick and Morty. expect to get like yelled at i'm sure she did because she looked at the attitude she just gave me but i guess the place like there was one place around here in detroit that had them and they had 20 
20 packets of it. And, uh, but you know, everybody at this point has already heard of it. I've already heard about it, how they, everybody ran out and stuff. And the big thing is, 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 is if McDonald's hadn't made a big deal of it, they'd have been so much smarter if they just said, Oh, people want the Szechuan sauce back. All right, here's the Szechuan sauce, you know, instead of making it all. Yeah, like- but it won't, if they, if they just gave the Szechuan sauce back, then it wouldn't have caused such hype. I think so it would have. So now people that didn't even want the Szechuan sauce are going to want the Szechuan sauce. I don't sauce. know, man. This backfired big time on them. When you've got ah. a thousand people outside of your restaurant chanting, give me the sauce and the police have to be called, and yeah, Twitter is alight with- I still with, don't, dude. Even bad publicity is publicity. I don't know. Considering don't know. how far McDonald's gone in the last couple of years, at this point, they're trying to get anybody in. Do you remember the Szechuan sauce? Way down. Of course I do. I love that stuff. I, I literally, too, truly remember what it tastes like. I can still envision it in my head. I can envision the taste. Wow, that's bizarre. <laughs> but I can, I can envision in my head what the stuff actually tastes like. And I remember going in the day that they didn't have it anymore, and I was really bummed that I was like, all right, give me sweet and sour. And then I'm eating the sweet and sour sauce, and I'm like, insubstantial, not the same. You know, and I don't even eat <laughs> McDonald's anymore. If I do, I, I just get chicken nuggets or chicken, whatever that oh. stuff is in the nugget. And Big that's Mac. all I get. I don't. I can't eat that anymore, man. When I eat Big it, it Mac. just tastes horrible. Big so, Mac. and then to change the subject again, last night I was hanging out. Um, I went to a big meetup. Um, John Tenney has this thing he does every year, which this has nothing to do with Szechuan sauce and McDonald's. I'm just sure everybody's just tired of hearing about it. But I went to this thing last night. Um, it was food, spirits, and spirits. And mm-hmm. it was uh, John Tenney. He gives this little presentation, and he tells stories every year about weird stuff. And apparently he's seen some kind of an elf or some kind of experience like that this year. Whatever. He's a good storyteller, sure. And then uh, Andrea uh, Perron, I believe is her name is, and she was the one who was um, wrote the true story of The Conjuring. She was involved in that, and she was there, which I really didn't even know. I was like, all right, I didn't realize who it was until I got there, and she was sitting like a table next to us, and we were all eating. They got up and did this big story thing. And um, apparently um, she was telling us that everything that happened in that movie was all Hollywood and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, all right, whatever. So the funny part of it is at the end of it, she's like, all right, we're going to do this little experiment right now. We're going to channel some spiritual energy. And her quote was, we should have enough spiritual in here to make this building levitate. So I'm there with Dorian, who has been on the show before. She's friends of ours. Mm -hmm. And there's another guy there whose name is Eric. You know who he is. And I I can't pronounce his last name. He always, I think he said to think of it as. With the W. Yeah, with Jowski or something like that. Yeah, with Jowski. Yeah, would you, whatever. That's not how his name is pronounced, but it's it's got mm-hmm. like four W's, a bunch of O's, a J, oh, no, it does not. and it's a ski seven. in it. S- something like that. It's, it's like his last name is like a, a one-word sentence with ski at the end of it. It's got a couple of W's and a J in it. Um, so he's really into the whole skeptic realm of ufology. He's got a book coming out pretty soon, and um, a lot of people that are in the in the ufology play, you know, business are getting the book, and he's eventually going to come on our show. Um, with arm twisting because he's local but he's a really cool guy so we all stand up and we're like all right let's do this haha you know so we're sitting there and she's like all right stick your arms out and breathe in through your nose and channel your energy throughout and she's like reach out and the first person you touch give them a hug so of course oh. me eric me me eric and and uh, and uh dorian we are all like okay it's us so we kind of wrap our arms around each other so we're everybody in the room is supposed to be doing this serious channeling of energy here's me being the jackass shoving my finger in people's ears and smacking people on the face and i'm grabbing eric's ass why we're doing this and you know it was it was funny the, the place did not levitate which is probably because of me directly i probably bought oh, down of course, the, absolutely i definitely oh. brought down the spiritual vibration by about seven spiritual decibels 
So, you know, and, you know, apologies if anybody was there and they wanted the room to levitate. You can totally blame it on me. That was it was me sticking my finger in people's ears and noses while we were in the <laughs> channeling moment. So, all right. Um, we have rambled on long enough and that's going to do it for this week. We will see everybody next week. I don't want to say who the guest is, but it's been a long time coming. Good friend Wait, of the show. The I don't want to say because the curse of the show will ruin it. Oh, and the right. guy is already kind of fleaky as it is, as far as coming. Hey, yo, on the that's show. not cool. He'll even say it himself. It's not by that's his fault. It's not his fault. He's just a really busy guy. No, it's his fault. No, come on, yeah, man. it's his fault. So I'll, I'll say that he just recently is back from Ireland. So we're going to be talking to him about what he has seen and done in Ireland, and mm-hmm. uh, I, that's mm-hmm. it. I'm done. We've mm-hmm. we've brought this show to a long long enough mm-hmm. point as it is. So boom, boom, boom. It's not an oompa loompa. It's not an oompa Oh, God. Keebler elves. That's what we got to ask about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Keebler elves. Got to remember that. Interesting. Um. Yeah, that's it. Uh, this is Rojan. Peace out from Detroit. This is Lobo from Connecticut. Jeffrey Combs, I wish he was my friend. Oh, peace. Peace. I have no fucking clue what the hell you're talking about 90% I of the don't time. know. You don't know who Jeffrey Combs is? I have no idea who Jeffrey Combs is. At least not at this moment, I don't. God. He played Herbert West in Reanimator. Oh. Jeffrey Combs. Okay. Ah, never mind. I think I hit the stop button. Did I hit the stop button? I hit the stop button, but I'm not hearing the ding ding thing. Uh oh, it's busted. Fucking broke it, bro. I gotta go make some poutine. Okay. Ooh, I love poutine. They called me and broken on you When they called me evil on you When they called me ruin on you I would always find my way to When I beg forgiveness, then you When I beg for mercy, then you When I beg for nothing, then you I would always find my way to